Join me on my hunt as we travel in search of stories through the wind door. This journey has been long anticipated, and we are ready. people who might have noticed some snapping or popping on the last bit of the previous episode, it's an artifact of this particular Skype recording that makes up the bulk of part five. I don't know what caused it at the time, other than maybe Skype settings, but I've never had it before or since. I tried to edit out or mute the effect to make it bearable, but otherwise I apologize. We haven't had any major sound issues for a while, so this was unexpected. That said, on with our show. We've gone further far afield from our questions list, and even though this is this is all great stuff, uh, let's aim ourselves back to it a little bit. Continuing to follow Haka on his journey. Adventures uh, of Haka. <laughs> this is now the culmination of the trifecta that Alex and company were discussing during that one little piece of round table that they gave us access to, where we see the overall effect of Haka's confrontation with Krau in the crumbling city of Yamaya and how that turned out, and then the fact that he ended up captured by the lions and was unable to affect any meaningful change that way in terms of gaining everybody their freedom, having to see what happened to Rao in front of his own eyes and being unable to marshal the strength or ability to do anything about that as well. So by the time Miguel shows up, and makes it possible for the cats to win their freedom. Like, if Miguel hadn't shown up, I find myself wondering... Well, actually, hold on a second. If if Miguel hadn't shown up, then they would have a hard time getting out of their chains to begin with. Like, mm. th- the fact that he shows up radically shifts everything in regards to how they are able to get free and able to muster a proper conflict against the, the sailors and everything like that. Well, but, I that, but if Miguel hadn't done that, all of them would be dead. And I'm not just talking the cats and everything, I'm talking the lions as well, because the widow beneath the waves was already upon them at that point. And it's only really through the freed cats going over and like mustering a fight against it that they actually have a fighting chance whereas it's very likely that if nothing was done then the ship would have probably just been sunk it's true on top of that though now the audience finally gets to see that there was more going on than merely the widow being unhappy about the ship's presence and invading her territory 
and being attacked and everything like that. Haka actually plays a part in all of this where he manages to, even after everything that has happened, find the strength to make contact with the great Leviathan and actually convince her to abstain from hostilities because it's uncertain whether or not if she hadn't chosen to leave, thanks to Haka, we don't know that any of them would have survived anyway, because Prow and the other hunters do their best to combat this thing, but they don't have experience with fighting a sea monster. Mm. So, as the original story played out, it's easy for us to have thought, oh, maybe it just left because it decided, you know what, I'm sick of this fight, I'm piecing out. Now we know for certain that there was already intense anger in the Widow for being attacked to begin with, and it's only through mental contact and sharing with Haka that the combat has actually ended. Here is his first real show of proper communication where something important is exchanged. We, of course, saw the momentary communication and conflict between the Silent One and himself, and we don't necessarily know how that was resolved, even though we know, thanks to covering all the chapters, that the Silent One was in fact uh, not, there wasn't any combat or death as a result of any of that conflict. But you ended up writing some yourself that he actually takes to heart some of Brask's teachings here. And mm. in seeing what the widow represents, he's like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to fight this enormous mind. Therefore, I, I have to find some way to... Well, it's it specifically ties into Haka's response to the prophetic artwork and things that Brask imparts to him about someday there's going to be something that comes to our shores and we it will bring about a lot of ruin. And he thinks, we've got to do something, we've got to stop this. And... Brask is saying, you can't stop it from happening. Mm. And the widow beneath the waves is a force of nature. I think there is like very little disputing that. So Hacker, his initial thought of trying to confront it and employ his abilities is that Hacker sees the oncoming storm and thinks, I can tame this, I can subdue it or even stop it. But he can't. That there are some forces, some movements that he is powerless to prevent outright. And this is what he up to now he's found a lot of difficulty in coming to peace with that fact because he is so convinced that Miguel is a force of ruin and he decides to take it on himself that he will be the one to stop it. Here, what he actually sees is that it's how he responds and works with that immense force that makes the difference. And that's what he does with the Widow. He doesn't overpower it. He navigates around its immense presence. Yeah. 
imparts his own weariness to the widow and be like, aren't you tired too? Mm -hmm. What point is there in continuing to have conflict when you can just leave? And unfortunately for Haka, he loses himself in that a little bit. He, Mm -hmm. in, in trying to impart this idea to the widow, he wants to surrender to it. And it's understandable considering that, well, not just everything, but the idea that he is communicating with, in some ways, a mind that is far vaster than his own. Mm. So the idea of getting subsumed by it, particularly Mm. at his weak level, is... yeah understandable it, and tempting for him yeah if if the widow is the waves if it's the ocean and what he is actually managed to successfully do is to alter its course somewhat he is still swept up in its tidal movement that that's something that you can't avoid but what it reminds me of is that old adage that uh the best lie is something with an element of truth. And Mm. I'm not saying that what Haka is doing is lying to the widow. I think that there is something about creating a sort of statement that becomes accepted. And it's because Haka is actually truthfully saying that, yes, I am tired. And the danger there is that because he puts into the widow a thought that really is almost deeper than just his surface level needs which is what he has employed animals and creatures to do up till now this is the first time he's actually having something be driven by an inner tumultuous feeling I, i can't quite think of the word it's just in order to actually get through this situation he has to be a bit more open than he was perhaps ready for and that means that he it's a moment of some progress but it does actually take a toll because that's how a lot of significant moments of reflection and introspection are is that you stumble across a truth that is maybe a bit too raw for what you're ready for and it can pull you down in what I really think that Haka nearly fell into here is the sunken place. Mm. Wow. Okay, that's a that's an interesting analogy. To <laughs> sorry, that 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 is a, that's a fascinating analogy to draw upon. Uh, yeah, exactly. Sorry, we're all feeling very close mm-hmm. to that after the most recent school of movies episode where he was introducing this idea to the buzzer been on his show before yeah they're being buzzed mm-hmm. off yeah. exactly i i like that idea the, the mm-hmm. or rather the um the metaphor that you're using there uh in terms of being lost and unable to literally reach the surface we're using all of our water metaphors here being pulled mm-hmm. down by the undertow and everything completely Throughout parts of our retrospective, I have made reference to this piece of the Tiger's Eye Roundtable that Alex shared with us. I didn't intercut with parts of it because, let's face it, we've been talking more than enough, 
And this podcast is all about our interpretation rather than Alex interpreting for us. But I didn't re-explain the insight provided, which is that like Rao's rape and Miguel's kill, this is Hakka's lowest point. There is a three-way mirror here, in that this is part of his journey that we are all on, this moment where he considers letting his mind leave the widow and allowing his body to die. In a way, this entire scene is a bit of a conundrum. I haven't heard the Monomyth episode that Alex and Sharon did, so I can't draw a straight line of how Hakka's story complies to the Monomyth, especially when events might seem to be out of order. He's currently in the belly of the whale, so does this make this moment parts of the initiation? One could argue that confronting the Silent One is the meeting with the goddess. But the widow is also referred to as a goddess by Harau. So, is this scene one part trial, one part meeting, and one part temptation, when he considers leaving his body behind? This is not my pattern, and things aren't always resolved so cleanly. On top of that, coming back to this moment and rereading it, I find myself perplexed by Hawke's choice. In the moments just before, he saw Miguel in the mask and believed that Hrau was lost to him. In that moment, he would seem to have lost everything even before he made mental contact with the widow. Which makes me ask this, why did he act to save the whale at all? If he truly believed that Hrau was lost to Miguel, and he had no common cause with the other cats, he could have done nothing allowed the widow to destroy the ship, and Miguel with them. By the same token, he could have chosen to die, and we never really understand how he manages to come back from the undertow of the widow's mind. One can't simply explain it away as him having the will to live, especially when his will is this weak. And the only explanation that I have is that this is the pattern of his mind. It's not like him to do nothing. That's not what his idea of the shaman does. Even if Rao is lost, he can't not fight for her, and even though he is eventually overcome by hate for Miguel again, he cannot abandon his duty. Which in this case is also to be a healer, however stunned. Or maybe it's just the power of the story. He's not a villain, he's a protagonist. Which means he has to survive this moment, learn from it, continue on and eventually come to the atonement with the abyss. He's a shaman, which means he lives and dies by stories. And part of him knows that his story is not done. I think this is what works about these chapters, because on paper, I forget if this is something I brought up in previous chapters, but on paper, this is a hell of a gamble in the last few chapters of the book because you're essentially after already doing a let's go back to the beginning or let's you mentioned this actually the peter b parker and all the different spider men and women in uh into the spider verse where everyone's going okay let's do this one last time yeah for real this time this is it it's different characters taking you back to the starting point of this lengthy journey and showing you their perspective on it. And when you're in the final chapters, it's a gamble to do that. Even though it's a character we've been wanting insight for, it is three full chapters dedicated to Haka. Mm -hmm. And 
it's a gamble which I think is being set up because we know that where this is going to culminate. It's all about showing you the pieces that were maybe on the other side of the board that are suddenly going to fit together in a way that really is so essential. It's something that does require a deftness of touch to it. And I think it's by making it these three chapters really are the adventures of Hucker, his journey, his story. And the way you introduce this whole segment is this is Hucker's lowest moment. Mm. And it's fascinating to see if this is a hero's journey, it's kind of like it's three heroes' journey because the belly of the whale, the stalwart whale, is the belly of the whale for these three characters, but in very different ways. Mm-hmm. They each reach their lowest moment, and it's completely motivated by different things that relates to their present circumstances, but also everything that has been leading up to this. And that's why it is important, even in these last few chapters, because communication can not only be the act of talking with one another, but the act of empathy. And that means putting yourself in another person's place and seeing, or at least trying to see, the steps that have brought you to where you are. You talk about it in terms of being a gamble. My two cents on this, and I don't have any particular insight into why it is that Alex chose this to play out the way it did other than my own personal responses to the story. And we'll get more into all of that when we do our final wrap-up episodes. We are having it only revealed to us now that this was always a journey for all three of them. And there are thematic elements to that, but the thing that comes to me, and I will be asking you to look at this from your own perspective as well when we get deep into this, is the idea that even though they are three separate people with their own journeys to go down and their own arcs to complete and their own issues to combat the story would not mean the same thing. It would not be whole if it did not include all three of them. And the idea that maybe it's not three different stories that we're actually looking at, but it is one story that just happens to involve three people. Mm. Or alternately, the metaphor of the three parts of one person on a journey together. I I didn't expect any of this back when I first read the story. And so therefore it was, it was definitely a surprise Mm. to suddenly, as you say, let's do this one more time and go back to the beginning and see everything through Haka's experience. It's only now after having gone through the story once myself, and now with you having dug deep into all of the elements of what Tiger's Eye has to provide, 
that I understand the absolute necessity of revealing that Haka was the third protagonist of the story mm. the entire time, and we just didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that I you hit the nail on the head, is that this is what comes from us doing this most recent <laughs> read-through, is that with Tiger's Eye, when I thought back on it, when I thought of its positioning in New Century, I tended to think of it as, that is the story of Hrau, and that's only natural, because she is this brilliant character with an even better and more brilliant performance to bring it to life. It's spellbinding. Mm-hmm. And so Hrau dominates your memory, but the thing is that when you go back to it, you realise that as much as Hrau is the triumph of this book and this audio drama specifically with Maureen's performance as well. It really is this story. It's not just the stories of three people. It is the story of these people and their interaction with one another that does come to light because Miguel's story, I started to appreciate more as we got to that section and then Haka came to the forefront and it makes you realise that, yes, this has always been about communication and that means that as, as much as we love Hrau by necessity, it almost couldn't happen any other way. You could not have Hrau go on this journey of reconnecting with others and reconnecting with herself and her past and coming to terms with it and creating this relationship with Miguel. You could not do this story without it being the way it is, without it being this interconnected drama between these characters. On top of that, one of the things that suddenly occurs to me is that of all of the things that happen over the course of this story, one could perhaps be a little disappointed that Hrau does not have a final clearing of the air with Haka himself. They, they do speak at the very end when Haka is overcome emotionally and she looks at him and all he can say in response is that he's sorry. And that no, 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 no. All they can say to each other is, I'm sorry. It's very important that they both say it to one another. Mm. Okay. Sorry, please do go ahead. I didn't mean to stop your point uh, short. Well, no, actually, now that you've mentioned that, maybe that's really all that needed to be said is... Yeah, I had actually forgotten that that he said it and that she said it back to him. And mm. it doesn't necessarily need to be more complex than that. No, um, and it's uh, the, like I was going to sort of chime in once I had given you the space to fully fledge out your thought. I failed there, but anyway, moving on. Toby and I apologize for stepping on each other's words because that's who we are as people. For the most part, we manage not to talk over each other as much these days, 
And those few times it happens, I often edit it out, since the dialogue is not needful to get the point across. Also, I don't know how to set it up so that we have different voice tracks, so I can't extract the conversation so that it sounds good. But by and large, we also want to give the other person room to speak, even if we feel like that person may have made a mistake. Many times, Toby in particular is on a tear, so I will try to wait till he's done before correcting anything. But I also think that we shouldn't be so afraid to correct each other if a misunderstanding fundamentally changes our understanding of a situation. Toby worries that we lost the thought of value because he interrupted. But is it really of value if it comes from a misunderstood place? There's no right answer to that, as situations are fluid. But in this case at least, Toby's correction did bring me to a clearer place of understanding. We shouldn't be afraid of being wrong about something. Differing opinions or viewpoints on a subject are one thing, but making conclusions from faulty information should be corrected at the earliest opportunity, especially if those conclusions have dramatic effects. But that's a bigger issue and not the remit of this podcast. This is just a navel-gazing, long-witted way of me saying to Toby, don't apologize. This worked out the way it should. I do disagree. I think that Hucker and Frau, maybe it's not quite clearing the air, but it is, at the very least, it is the moment where they are able to... The overlapping, the way the audio drama frames it, is that the narration is saying that they say they each say the same words and then you hear Spencer and Maureen say it together overlapping I'm so sorry that is almost a case of they finally not only see one another but they are able to be in the same ground they are able to finally overlap in that sense and once that's achieved with everything that's happened up to this point, it's kind of necessary that they are square and now they have to each fulfill their own journey. For Haka, that means he has to go and confront the fact that he knows nothing or he believes he knows nothing and he needs the silent one's help. And Frau needs to see this journey through. It is basically both of them not just allowing... Well, yeah, they're they're kind of allowing the other to fulfill their own journeys. And I think that's where they see one another. Mm. Yeah. Maybe we'll eventually get to see what happens with Haka post-Tiger's Eye, as we discussed with Spencer. But um, just because we get to see what happens next with Crow and Miguel as they continue on to the rest of the world and become part of the greater team of protagonists uh, in Steamheart and later on down the pike. Tiger's Eye still stands very strongly on its own. Like it Mm -hmm. ends on a moment of uncertainty where we don't know what's going to happen next when Harau decides to literally take Miguel back into his own world instead of just letting him go back on his own. But thematically, 
that ending still works for all parties. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there isn't feeling like if you had never read any further book, it still ends with a finality of however things proceed with Haka back with Durga tribe and the silent one, however things proceed with Crow following Miguel into the unknown, they are where they need to be home. Exactly. And for me, the thought that uh, you, I almost thought you were going to go into, and uh, I guess I'll complete is that at the end, Frau very literally takes a leap and that's what, <laughs> Yeah, a no, leap like, of faith. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It, it, like, and that's what all of the characters are doing. They all have to jump off from the ground they knew into uncertain territory, and not just our three protagonists of, you know, Miguel knowing that he what he needs to do when he goes back. He is not going back home to live life as he did before. He's going home so he can join the army. RSA? RSSA? I forget. Just based on a brief review, the army doesn't appear to have its own abbreviation. The Reunified States of America is the RSA, but the army is just qualified as the Reunified States Army, small a. Which, I'm not sure that there's a difference, given Thomas Arlington's assertion of the idea of total war. But it does differentiate between people fit to serve as soldiers and people that serve the RSA in different ways. Miguel might not make for a great rank of file as it stands, but who knows what the future would hold for his very special set of skills should he rejoin the army. Brow is literally like taking a leap of faith to another world. Haka is acknowledging that the person he was before is not who he wants to be, and he has to relearn himself not only that but over in albion dr shira has taken this leap into joining freedom fighters who are trying to free the slaves there and it's all these characters who were discontent in the old life they knew confronting this thing of change is going to happen it's what you do in response to it that you can control. And all of them take a leap. Mm. Mm. This book's really good, you guys. <laughs> we seem to have skipped over a few of the <laughs> moments really on the... Well, yeah, but to be perfectly honest, we've already been sort of addressing them in various ways without... Like, it's, it's part of the overall ongoing conversation. And now that we're talking about the culmination of all of these different aspects of their journey, we might as well move straight to some of the other ending themes as well. Mm. Because I, I, th- I think it does speak to how these chap- ending chapters fit together, is that you can't talk about the stuff with Hucker's journey without the conversation kind of 
naturally leading into where the book ends because mm. that's the point this is the important stuff you need to know because it's leading into the end so when we talk about those moments with Hucker, it very naturally means that our conversation leads into the end mm-hmm. so as a part of these various resolutions and talking about how Tiger's Eye fits into the hero's journey. I'm not an expert on this. I couldn't tell you beat for beat, piece for piece, what all of the elements of the hero's journey are, except for a few that I remember off the top of my head, such as the meeting with the goddess and everything like that. Mm. But you know, I bet there are folks out there who can recite it, like reciting the states of America. And those I, people are the shores. <laughs> well, you did say that they did a show on this, and I still need to go back. And Essential listening. listening. I, I guarantee you it's one of my favorite episodes they've done. A link will be available in the show notes for those that have not heard it. I am in the process of listening to it over the course of editing to see what I picked up on and what I didn't, and may have some ending thoughts to share on the matter. But you should really check it out yourself if you haven't already. Not because the hero's journey is the only way that you can talk about stories ever. No, that's absurd. It's just that it is, like I said earlier, a lens. It's one lens you can look at it. But the thing about it is that if you look at something with only through a specific set of lenses, you're not really seeing the whole thing. You need to try other lenses. Try no lenses. Try all the lenses at once. It's fun. It's kooky. We would wear many lenses. We would wear many lenses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is never going to get old, I think. I, um, I, I love that link. I can't... <laughs> it's useless to say to everyone listening that I love that phrase because, of course, you know, I, I love it. But it really is, to me, this fantastic fantastically uh, useful and uh, phrase with a lot of utility and mm-hmm. in some ways more so than what Krieger may have meant in that but mm-hmm. this is as a kind of a tangent away from Tiger's Eye specifically why I know that New Century really has latched itself onto me as a set of stories because a lot of the time my favorite stories in whatever media will stay with me because they will become kind of like certain sentences will become part of my vocabulary. They will Mm -hmm. become part of the way I not only make sense of the world, but communicate and make sense of my own thoughts and things like that. So I would open many boxes has become that kind of thing for me. And, you know, I'm your pots. It's something that only makes sense in this context and yet it has so much wide applicability to it mm-hmm. yeah exactly so once again we ended up oh my god but, i'm so it, sorry greg this no, i don't know what it is about this particular session i'm very enthusiastic about this more so than usual and I have, you know how i, I am well, maybe the problem is is that we know that we're coming to the end of it, and we just want to get all of our thoughts out at once before time is up, and we don't have... Uh... <laughs> what you're saying is, this is the point where we know we don't have to pace ourselves. 
<laughs> Something like that, a little bit. Yeah, so Tiger's Eye is very good. And holy shit, have you seen how this all fits together? Yeah, exactly. I don't know what it's called, but the portion of the journey where the protagonist, the hero, can't return home after the journey that they've been on. This would be the crossing of the return threshold, in Campbell's terms. Although... Depending on how you interpret what comes next, how she considers what she could do, and chooses to go with Miguel, one could also suggest that her leaving with Miguel is actually the refusal of the return. I guess it depends a little bit on whether you think Tiger's Eye is cleaving specifically to the hero's journey, and whether they are subverting it on some level. The one thing I do recall is Sharon talking about how important the return stages of the hero's journey is to the narrative, and how a lot of bad writing skips it entirely. This is very literally made part of the text of the story when Harau could send Miguel on his way, and yet doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with the idea of returning back to Durga tribe, even though that was the implied goal for her mm. all along. I think that's reflective a little bit of back when the journey began, it was not about setting out to be a hero necessarily. This isn't we're not talking about Luke Skywalker who wants to go off and be more than a, a poor farm boy. He wants to live up to the inspiration of Obi Wan and the hero that he believes his father was and be a part of the wider world now that he realizes he has all of this stuff going on that he was barely aware of being in the middle of nowhere on Tatooine or anything like that. Hrow's goal when this begins is to return to the normalcy that she has set up for herself. But the problem is, is that that world that she was living in is far too limited for her now based mm. on what she has experienced along the way. And it's not just that she sees Miguel as home to her in a way that Coral was very clearly home to her back before all of this tragedy happened. As a result of all of this stuff, she, real, she sees the life that she built for herself or the life that she was living, if you can call it living, was a trap, was not ultimately healthy for her and so therefore she is not as much turning her back on her tribe which I think we believe she does care about that she is capable of caring about these things again but she is turning her back on what she set up for herself mm. she is choosing to as you say take that leap because she recognizes that Miguel is a path that is worth following and mm. can help her stay on a path towards 
being something better for herself, not necessarily for anybody else, but to keep out of that cycle of just continuing to do the same thing one day after the other and not even really caring about living your life anymore. She sees Miguel as an answer to actually living rather than merely existing. Hmm. It's almost like if you think of it in its antithesis of if Frau isn't turning her back on something and it's more like she's actually confronting or is choosing to not run away from what she wants, what she actually, to a certain extent, what she needs. I think that's... What a cat wants, what a cat <laughs> needs. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. Your punchiness is now making me punchy. <laughs> God bless you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, that's, but that's it. It's the segment of the hero's journey that, from my vague recollection, is that it's like returning to the village with the potion or something uh, like akin to that, where the idea is that the potion is just like the thing that you got out of your journey, which means that you are returning home, but you're not returning to home as it was you've come back with this potion and Mm -hmm. sometimes that is oh hey this has brought about change and positivity for for your home destination sometimes as is the case in lord of the rings at least from the way that peter jackson worked with it is that when frodo comes back his hometown actually did not change it did not go through anything really while they were away but he changed the potion was like what he took what he has brought back with him and it means that the shah isn't really his home anymore Mm. and for Rao, it's complicated it's not quite like that because she's not sailing off into the west i think it is in uh the end of that but because her tribe is going through change for one thing their shaman is who is a big part of the fixture is going through a major change for himself the albion will soon be here and the tribes of rama are all uniting there is major change going on but i think as the final word says if the whole point of a hero's journey is to return home Prowl has returned home, which is her role as a protector and mother to her child. Mm. That's what it is. It's the, in a way, the potion that Prowl comes back with is the fact that she rebuilds her home. Mm. Yeah. That's Prowl's piece of the puzzle. Um, In terms of Thank God there's no other complicated characters to go through this, huh? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Miguel's story is, like, we've already talked about Hrau at this point. We've delved a little bit into what is going on with Haka's mentality. 
it's the culmination of Miguel's journey that is what began to set things off for me in terms of trying to understand what was resonating with me so much with this story. And we'll talk a lot more about this next time as we discuss themes and metaphors and relationships with other pieces of media that invoke similar things in me. In the final chapter, where we are seeing everything come to a head, Crow is making peace with finally saying goodbye to Coral, as she was never able to do so before. And Miguel is having his own moment where he is coming to terms with the world he will have to return to before he realizes that Harau is going to end up coming with him, of course. In that final chapter, he's talking about the regret that he has for killing and the fact that he tries to talk with Harau about that, but she can't provide him with any easy answers. She has a different perspective on these things, but also acknowledges that he's going to have to come to terms with that himself. As mentioned earlier, he feels the need to confront his father and no longer be afraid of this former god that ruled over his life, even when he stood up to Francisco during that foundational moment in their relationship. But at the same time, the major theme that comes into play during that final chapter is the fact that Hawkeye is still a threat at that point, and Miguel makes the choice to not depend on Rao for protection because it's entirely possible he could have woken her up at any time. He feels the need to face his fears and take responsibility for everything that's happened in the meantime. And the way he chooses to express that is by facing Haka head on. And we don't necessarily know what's going on in his head when he chooses to say, okay, first of all, we're not going to involve Hrau in any of this, and Haka seems surprised and accepts that. But Haka is still under the impression, right up until it doesn't happen, that he is going to get in there and he is going to have to meet with Miguel on a physical level because this is the expectation. He has it built up in his own head that Miguel is still an opponent to him in spite of everything that he has seen along the way, Mm -hmm. in spite of that one moment back on the whale where he misinterprets what the panther shaman is trying to say to him, which is not to watch Miguel, but to actually look at Miguel and see what he is. That's that's the mindset that Haka is still in at this point. He is still Mm -hmm. convinced that 
Miguel is this arcane threat, and mm -hmm. so therefore misinterprets the wisdom that the Panther Shaman is trying to provide, because clearly almost everybody else on board that boat at this point is able to accept Miguel as a person, albeit an oddly shaped person in their own mind, based on their observations of him, which are not clouded by all of these complicated pent-up emotions. And then we see that in fact, there is no physical conflict there. Miguel sets aside his weapons and is taking... I'm not sure what words to use here, because on some level we could just say that Miguel is willing to give up his own life in order to prevent Hrau and Haka from being in further conflict. We don't necessarily know if Miguel has any insight into what Haka himself is going through. Mm. He is just this stalking horse, this, this shadowy figure, this bruja, as he refers to Haka over and over again, this potential practitioner of dark magic. But he still instead chooses to give up his own life if Haka wants to take it in order to bring all of this to resolution. Mm. And the thing that was coming to me in all of this is even though things do turn out well because Haka sees this sacrifice from Miguel and basically has to confront everything that he has done and said and did during this entire journey. Part of what I wonder, particularly in light of that conversation about how he regrets taking a life, is if he believes that he deserves punishment or consequence for killing the sailor, and that giving his life to Haka would be a way to atone from that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't... That's really up for us to interpret, I think, on a personal level, which is why this is going to be part of the conversation next time. But hmm. what are your thoughts on this moment? I do think that it's so significant that we see it from Haka's perspective because the whole point is that Haka seeing this is what results in the culmination of his character development so that's essential mm -hmm. and I think that it creates this and I use the word in its full meaning interesting moment with Miguel in that you don't get confirmation of what his thoughts are or his motivation is in that specific moment. You have to infer. And I think one thing that is significant is that, as you mentioned, he has resolved to go back and become a soldier in the RSA before this moment. Mm -hmm. We have full confirmation that Miguel has plans for his life, and they don't involve it coming to an end here. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the fact that he is sort of 
resolve to become a soldier means that he is prepared to fight and presumably die in protection of other people. And I think that to a certain extent, he is kind of embodying that here where it's... Yeah, wow, okay, that's... I could see the point that you were coming to as you were literally leading me up to the water like a horse mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. If he... And... <laughs> I'm sorry, keep going. No, 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 please. Uh, I know where I'm going. You, I would love to hear your... Uh, I brought the horse here, but now I want the horse to drink the water. <laughs> but you can't do that. Isn't that the contemporary wisdom? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I don't know. I don't even drive a car. How am I supposed to know how to drive a horse? <laughs> anyway, uh, no. Miguel Hucker. Yeah, no, you're, you're you're absolutely right that if he has accepted this part of himself that he would fight and die for a, a greater cause, what greater cause did he have at this point than Hrao's safety, I hmm. think? Because she has been protecting him all this way so the idea that you know like this this ends now but by the same token using that metaphor of being willing to fight and die for another he's not fighting and dying for her he is is, he is sacrificing well this is the thing miguel has learned to survive in this world but he has also confronted the weight of taking life And I don't think he can do it again without fully feeding its necessity. The narration up to this point has acknowledged that Miguel is thinking that he will probably have to do this again. And he fears that, but he has a sort of cold sort of resignation to that and a feeling that he is preparing himself for when that has to come again. Because he knows the toll that killing takes on him, I don't think he could kill Hucker even if he wanted to fight in this moment. He understands enough about this cat to know that he is part of Farrell's tribe. And so how could he kill one of her tribe when I think at this point he knows how much her tribe means to her? And whether or not he has sort of taken fully on board the importance of a shaman to their tribe that might factor into it as well, in the same way that Frau does not want to kill Hucker because not only is there a personal history there, but she knows what a blow that would be to the tribe. I imagine Miguel has come to that conclusion as well. When Miguel offers himself, he is taking responsibility, as you say, as you mentioned, about he is almost using this moment as a I am offering myself a judgment for what I have done to one of the cats of this world. It's kind of perfect that he offer himself to judgment at the hands of another cat. Mm. But I think he is also taking responsibility for the fact that he might feel accountable for all that Hrau and Hacker have gone through. He does not want to die, but he accepts Hucker's judgment, what, whatever it may be. The the very last thing that Hucker sees and uh, says in his narration is that as Miguel is bowing down and ready for whatever Hucker will do, he is trembling. He is doing this, but he's not doing it without fear. He wants to live. Because Miguel has shown the conviction to face 
like he has shown a conviction to face his the consequences of his actions for a long time now when his father hurt him after he expressed his resolve not to steal he did so knowingly he knew that his father would be as at, like the angriest he had ever been at him and he knew what that would oh, he had an idea of what that would probably mean and after going through all this with Harrow, he understands what the Brujo will wants to do, and he understands why, and he faces it. But this time he does so with a respect and gratitude towards Hucker that he does not involve Frau. I think it's all of that that comes together to be... What this moment is, is that Miguel has so many reasons to offer himself to Hucker's judgment... But at the same time, he also has so many reasons why he does not want to do it in a sense of he wants to live. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what gives the moment meaning. This is different to the moment when Haka almost gets dragged down by his own thoughts with the widow beneath the waves. That is a moment of Haka, I think, as much as he has things compelling him to live and keep living... There is a self-destructiveness there that's underneath the surface that feels like part of him does want to let go. This is Miguel putting him in a position where he might experience what Haka almost experienced, but he does not want to let go. Mm. And, I mean, when you're confronted with that, how could Haka respond any differently? We know that this moment is important thematically because of the way Haka responds to it. We cannot know and do not know if Miguel hoped that in being willing to give up his own life that it would get through to Haka. Because the two have not communicated before this. This mm. is really the first time that there has been actual opportunity for them to speak in any meaningful way. Mm. And I think all elements of these last few moments sort of pile up on each other to an extent because Haka points all of them out as he finally makes the decision to admit the truth of his eyes in that he highlights on the fact that when Miguel is talking with him he learned enough of their language to be able to say thank you. Haka points that out. He's embraced our culture, learned our language, helped teach us a new one, freed us, brought us together, and never once asked for recognition. I think a little part of that last bit of narration there is the idea of just because Miguel has entered a very different world, he is not 
also taken the place of the white savior trope. Although in this case, Miguel is also very deliberately not white either. But mm-hmm. one could still draw that analogy in terms of the fact that he is a human. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so therefore, just like that was an element in, say, the Cameron movie Avatar, where human enters alien society and becomes a better native than any of the any of the people that are part of that society this is the the thing that comes up again and again in say uh dances with wolves or thunderheart or the last samurai or something like that you know or avatar yeah, well, that the Avatar is the <laughs> Avatar is the one I chose there because of the clear differences in between. It isn't just humans with other humans; it's the idea of the trope surpassing into humans with aliens now, and which is the closer analogy here, thanks to how different, in some ways, as opposed to other ways, the cats of Rama are from the humans of of human worlds and everything like that. So. I've sort of lost my train of thought now towards the end of it. I'm sorry. Are there Wendigo coming into your room? I hear doors opening and closing. <laughs> you hear doors opening and closing, do you? Uh, no, no Wendigos. Uh, just... Is it Krieger opening many doors? <laughs> Shut the door, Krieger. No, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't come back to the Uncivil Outlaw. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing I have to say before we sort of move on from the moment of Miguel's sort of taking this decision is that Miguel's journey is in some ways him being able to take agency. His his moment in the whale is that he is the key to the captive's victory. But the thing is that he deliberates. He doesn't know how to not that he doesn't know how to he doesn't know when to take action to start and actually move like he is frightened and it's only from him actually sorry um it's only when he manages to take that step to achieve the slave's freedom he is taking agency, and when he goes home, he resolves that he will, no matter what his father says, join the RSA. That is him coming back with that agency. And when Haka comes to uh, confront him, as much as he is giving himself to Haka's judgment, which feels like it should be stripping him away of it, it is kind of more that it is his conscious choice to do that, because this is the only moment where what Haka wanted to do to Miguel to kill him is kind of like put in Miguel's hands that all of the time before this, people have been discussing what is to be done about Miguel Uh. or let me kill Miguel. And Haka's no. And Haka's (laughs) like, come on. And Miguel never is. And that's the thing is that this is the first time that Haka is actually looking and looking at Miguel and it's because Miguel's has not been asked 
once about any of this. And it's alarming to Haka when it's a case of, okay, I can see that the creature I am targeting is alone. Now I can finally confront it. And at first, the fact that he asks that he not disturb Frau, it's like, okay, I won't do that. But now you're totally going to fight for your life, right? And then when you finally confront it and it says, right, I it's your call. It's your move now. It's okay. Do what you got to do. It's like, oh, the, <laughs> that, that's not what I expected. Okay, I'm going to, I need to go home and rethink my life. I'm not getting the victim mentality that I'm used to, used to at this point of the status <laughs> debate. It's the, it's the, it's that moment where Hacker does have the, like, <laughs> Are we the baddies? Like that just moment of, oh no, I am the asshole. Ah, oh, <laughs> shit, no. And I'm I'm being facetious and jokey here, but it's it's a powerful moment, and that's what makes this story as dark as it can be, so uplifting in its conclusion mm. because it is. The fact that you can come so close to losing everything. Haka pursued Miguel because the conclusion to his trio of chapters is nothing else matters. All that matters is me finishing this quest to kill Miguel. Mm. And the fact that like that sounds like he is a cat that has lost everything. That almost sounds like it's setting it up to Haka is going to die tragically mm. by the end of this story. And the fact that he is that close, that almost sounding far gone, and he ultimately it, it is Miguel's action that stirs it, but it is him it is still in his hands. It is still in his power. And he pulls himself back. He does that for himself. And he pursues positive change. How is that not the most inspiring thing? How is that not what you hope for? What fiction should be encouraging us to drive us for it? Which is why, you know, stories... I don't want to always compare it against things that do it worse, but it bears mentioning that those stories that act as if someone is a lost cause, that, that yes, and even this story will say this, there are assholes who will never change, who you should not see as like people who can be redeemed. Mohawks are going to be mohawks. Mm. But huckers don't have to be mohawks. Mm. And we'll talk next time about what this story <laughs> means to us. Over the course of this conversation, as much as Rao is, and will probably always remain my favourite character in all of New Century, I'm increasingly realising how much hucker means to me as well. Mm. And the fact that he gets to mean that to me is not only a major achievement of this text, but it's something I'm so thankful for that I can be that. Haka is different from a lot of the other complicated antagonistic characters in the story in that he gets to A, have an arc, 
and B, complete his arc mm. over the course of this one story. Mm. We have the characters of, say, Carl, who starts off as an antagonist and ends up being important enough that he reshapes Abigail's world back in Secret Rooms. There are going to be other characters going forward that are going to be potentially antagonistic and may need redemption arcs of their own or may need to confront the people they were and become better people. Um, We have yet to see whether Captain Beatrix is going to be one of those people. I will add that Beatrix is in Panther Soul, but you'll have to read it for yourself to find out what her arc is and how the events of Tiger's Eye affected it. And reading it is the only way to take it in for now, as the audio drama is a long way off. But in the case of Haka, we sort of understand that his problems were never really one of moral failings. We look at him as being the villain at first because he wants to kill a kid. And it's only through hearing his story that we understand what it is that has brought him to this place, is Mm -hmm. that it's not even who Miguel is, but what he represents that convinces him that this is what he needs to do. Uh, and that that is more important than any other consideration where other mm-hmm. people have other considerations. Other people will be like, hang on a minute, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, he has. Look, everybody, I'm just saying, can we put this issue on pause? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you just have to get in one one more few cat puns before we're finally done. Um, no, what the, the thing that I was trying to get to is that Haka doesn't as much need a redemption arc because he has not crossed the moral threshold yet. He's come close, um, hmm. but he managed to pull back from the edge and realize that he has been foolish this entire time and needs to choose a different path in order to be a good shaman, in order to be a good member of this family. He doesn't need a redemption arc because he redeems himself, and he manages to do that completely internally as well. Other people may help him see what he is, but it's not a case of that he has done a whole lot of things that he necessarily needs to make up for. Um, Mm. It's a very good point, because I'm thinking about another character who goes through an arc of being an antagonist who goes through internal changes, Zuko from Avatar, and how, spoilers for the next minute or two, for that excellent show, in case you haven't watched it, but anyway, um, he doesn't necessarily ever achieve his goal of capturing or killing or anything Mm -hmm. like that so it's almost like he is able to come back from that and it kind of comes to a humorous full circle conclusion 
in Legend of Korra. Uh, have you watched that at all, Greg? I I know enough about Legend of Korra for some of the plot elements of it, but okay. I have never actually so don't watched worry. one like the, the pilot. All right, this is a very sort of small humorous bit, but you see an aged Zuko talking about someone who has these combustion powers, Mm -hmm. and he is saying to the current Avatar's father about this, and he's saying, ironically, I did actually try to hire someone who had similar powers to kill the the previous Avatar, and there's just this awkward silence, and he says, it didn't work. (laughs) In a sense of, like, I mean, it's cool, right? Like, it didn't work right we're, we're good we're good <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah one last thing that i want to highlight here and it's really more of an internal question because obviously we will never actually know what the answer is you mentioned that part of the reason we don't know what's going on with Miguel, when he chooses to offer his life to Hakka, is because the second Hakka shows up, we are immediately transferred to Hakka's point of view, and so therefore don't have any knowledge that isn't outside of Hakka's perceptions. And immediately after he falls to his knees and realizes that he has been a fool this entire time, which... Miguel's response to that is to reach out and and touch him on the shoulder, an acknowledgement of both of their personhood. It's not just that Haka now is able to see Miguel as a person rather than a thing. Miguel is also responding to Haka and acknowledging him as a person by acknowledging his pain. Across the way, Haka sees... Crow stir and she doesn't behave violently about any of this it may possibly be that she just awoke from slumber but given how calm she is about all of this I find myself wondering if she was in fact awake the whole time and waiting to see how things would play out there and we're not going to know. You know, no. maybe maybe she was hoping for the same outcome. I, like, I won't say this as a, oh, this is my argument and this is what it has to be. This is more... Explaining the s- ending of Tiger's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we're, not, we're not doing that. But what I will say is that I feel like the moment is that she was asleep because that's kind of her journey is that she she needs to be able to sleep right exactly yeah and that's what miguel wants for her and knows that she needs it's not just that miguel cares for her on a general level and doesn't want her to be disturbed he doesn't want her to be deprived of this thing that he knows she needs it is very important that she sleeps and I think that that just sleeps, but I think feels safe. Exactly, and yeah. I think that that is probably something that, in a way, that Hucker is also aware of. That he probably knows that Frau has not slept and does 
and sees it as the enemy. And for that moment of when she wakes up and sees this, it feels like Prowl is not so reactionary. She is, her senses are very attuned that the situation, as much as she would be waking up to it fresh, I think she would actually be able to tell very quickly that the hostility is not there because there's a lot of little signs and body language that would go into great cats like these for Very when they have their instincts. Yeah. They like when they have murderous intent, I think that's not necessarily something that you can mask necessarily. Mm. Also, I don't think Hucker is deceptive. That that's the thing. He is always very forward and blunt. He mm. he never tries to achieve his goals through deceit. And so when she sees this moment of genuine acknowledgement of personhood between them, I think that she can actually take Haka at his word there. Like I say, this is not me explaining the ending of Tiger's Eye. Not only do I not want you to have the same reading of this moment as I, I actually want you to have a different reading because mm. it's more fun that way if we, <laughs> like, because... Why can why would should one scene mean it one thing when it can mean many things? Open many doors. I wasn't gonna say it. I just... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's it's already in my mind and everything like that. And again, mm. I think the energy of all of this is just sort of has been getting to us all evening as we realize, oh my God, we're in a moment, we're going to have nothing more to talk about. So we, we got to make sure that we think of everything that we need to right now. And it's just yeah. making us a little bit giddy, I think. Yeah, it really is. This is, this has been an amazing journey because it has been hard. There are moments we just put out the, at time recording the episode where we handled the, the hardest part of Tiger's Eye. And I am both very proud of like what we, how we discussed and everything with that. And also sort of cautiously hesitant about it as well, because I acknowledge that there is no easy and surefire way to talk about it. And the very fact that we talked about it at length, it's something that requires careful consideration, but also not, staying in the moment there so this journey has been when we came into tiger's eye you sort of want it to be the best analytical work you'll ever do the mm. like every episode is a complete banger we get all this analysis and i'm proud of every episode we've done there are some episodes that we get even more into it there are some where we're sort of doing the groundwork but it's not necessarily where all the solutions come out of it it's a journey and we're at this point where it's where the story is experiencing its rejuvenating high after going through so much and so in our own journey analyzing this text we're kind of in that rejuvenated high and mm. the next episode where we finally let Rao rest, I think is going to be very cathartic, mm -hmm. but also 
so much more than that and I wouldn't have it any other way and I'm excited I'm nervous and suddenly it's like I'm back where we were when we first started this third season on Tiger's Eye and this story I think will always have this effect on me I can't think of any other anything else to say in the wake of all that you've You've pretty much hit the nail on the head. So, for now, we will close the book on Tiger's Eye and come back to it fresh as we finish up with our wrap-up thoughts and get into some of this deeper meaning that the story means to us in particular now that we have laid down all of the events as best we can in a properly linear fashion. We are going to come back to it in a non-linear fashion. And I hope that it hasn't been too much for all of you as well. There has just been so much and will continue to be so much. I don't know going forward if things will ever get quite this deep and intense. Like, I can't predict the future. It's entirely possible that we will find unexpected new things we discover when we get into stories like Arlington or the Princess Thieves or even the Christmas Thieves, which I at one point was being like, well, I'm not a huge fan of Dickens, so I'll be more than happy to follow them on this journey because it's Merlane and the Nag, and how can you not love the two of them? But... Mm -hmm. After re-listening to it this Christmas, I have a greater appreciation for it now than I did, and I'll be looking forward to eventually discussing that. Also, just thinking about, like, look, all of this is going to culminate eventually in Steamheart. And Steamheart is an enormous book oh, no. with so many plots uh, and oh, I mean, and antagonists. Uh, <laughs> it's, here's the thing. We may not get as detailed as this because of just what Tiger's Eye means to, I think, everyone who reads in New Century and Tiger's Eye. I think it has that personal connection to, in, and this is the point. What better way to close the discussion on it is to say, this is what this book does to people, is it just causes you to look inwards and have that catharsis. But New Century is a series where each story is told in its own terms, with its own set of rules. So I think there's no more fitting way than to say that we don't know how discussions will go moving forward. We can always promise that we will do our best to discuss them on their own terms. Well said. Well said. Thank you, listeners, for having come with us this far and next week there will be another trip through the wind door take care all of this was recorded before either of us had read stone string maidens or panther soul some of you have likely already heard how we feel about that first one and i'm still waiting on toby to finish the second because i know that it's going to have its own level of explosive discussion in regards to what that story means to both of us Stories mean a lot to everyone. As Alex and Sharon and their guests got into in the Hero's Journey podcast, 
They are how we make sense of the world. Is Tiger's Eye more powerful to some because it follows that monomyth path closer than others? Does it feel more primal, closer to the ancient mythologies that came before? Is that why I ended up responding to it like I did? I don't know. But then, I also didn't know how significant Jungian archetypes were to the hero's journey before we recorded on it, and I used that mythology heavily to interpret how I responded to the story. I will, however, leave you on a quote from Joseph Campbell himself when he went on a talking circuit presenting his ideas to auditoriums. Culture is a cooperation. The result of a cooperation between the self and the ego. And mythology is the language of the self speaking to the ego system. And the ego system has to learn how to read it. For the most part, we in our world have forgotten how. Unpacking all of that requires a more complicated explanation of what the ego and the self are. But at the base of it, Campbell is suggesting that the conscious and unconscious mind are working in concert to explain to the world we have constructed as to why it works the way it does. It takes what the conscious mind sees and what the unconscious mind can imagine, and people by and large come to an accord about what these things mean. We can't have a culture unless we agree on the fundamental existence of abstract concepts like money, freedom, morality, self-worth, catharsis, and many others. We need to agree that they exist and give them names so that we can talk about them. We can't even have a communication without agreeing that the things that we experience have qualities that we can name, like color and sound. Some of those experiences will be shared. Some will be very personal. And in most cases, those personal experiences are still grounded in fundamental archetypes that have resonated throughout human history. So next time, Toby and I will communicate about those experiences we had with Tiger's Eye. To play us out, one of my favorite pieces of music ever. Especially about communication and about trying to live honestly. Until next time, this is Sarah Bariles with Brave.
I've sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, we need to get our I'm sorry, go ahead out of the way before we actually start. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so, I've rambled on for far too long on far too many subject matter. Hades is good. I'll be playing more of it after we're done recording today. So uh I won't be rushing through. That's not that's not a case of me going like, yeah, 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 Tiger's Eye, it's good. Hades. <laughs> no, 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 I don't know. Crossover. <laughs> I don't I don't even know what that would look like, crossover between Hades and, look, and Tiger's Eye. Look, all I want is to see my Panther boyfriend drawn in the art style of Hades. That's that's fair enough. There are some very beautiful people in Hades. Certainly, <laughs> Men I'm... want only one thing, and it's disgusting. Our <laughs> <laughs> meaning to be one conversation and done coverage of a few chapters is like I, I mentioned this in the thing that I just said to you we have and some of that's going to be side conversation that's going to be edited out entirely and some of it might be salvaged for um, outtakes at the end or yep. that. yeah exactly but there's five fucking hours of content five, five and a half hours of us talking for this one outline and that isn't even like we're finally doing the last five chapters today. Oh, no. <laughs> and, oh, then we, no. and then we have to have the final conversation. We are not. We're going to be talking about Tiger's Eye for months. At this we point. are seventy-five hundred words long of notes here, and this is not the summary of the whole book. This is just Hacker's chapters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's get started. Come on, we can all do right, this. All right, okay. <laughs> I will uh, see you around the Discord and talk to you very soon. There is no escape. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't even talk about the most intimidating uh, antagonist of uh, New Century because we haven't gotten yeah. there yet. Yeah, uh, tail end of Arlington. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> tail. Okay, now okay, got to get away from these cat puns. Okay, let's let let's mm. try to keep talking about uh, the subject. They are a mew thing. Oh, come on, come on! We're trying. Look, we have we only have a little bit of time left. Let's let's try and stay on topic. All right, all right, all right. Um, I don't mm. believe in the inevitability. Inevitab after that, we'll see how much space is our. We'll see how much space is our ramblings take up now that I've become Scottish. Hi, future Greg. Listening to the beginning of this, this is uh, uh, you. Oh, you missed a real cracker before this. Yeah, let me tell you. And uh, I can't remember it, and you can't remember it. So you know. We'll just have to trust it wasn't our best material ever. <laughs> Did you just skip forward two years? <laughs> I'm I'm skipping forward to whenever we get to the end of Tiger's Eye, so I suppose yes, that is two years. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. It was twenty twenty that took forever. Um The missing part of the conversation here was us speculating on 
why we had an equipment failure in the middle of our discussion of chapters 16 through 20 of Tiger's Eye. I don't know. I, don't know. I think that it probably just uh, couldn't handle the uh, the anxiety and the stressful situation that was unfolding, which, you know, we, we've all been there. No, had enough of problems dealing with this stuff ourselves without our equipment suddenly having an anxiety attack. <laughs> But I'm happy just New like, Year, by the way. Oh, <laughs> yes, Happy New Year to you too, as well. We we made it through the window out of the hell dimension that was mm-hmm. 2020, like into one that is just adjacent. So it's natural for it to be contaminated somewhat, but you know it's a bit more of a fresh start. So we got fingers crossed. One one certainly hopes. I think. Can you believe we've been doing this for about a year now? Because yeah. I remember it was this time last year that we were talking about, we should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this guy doing a video? I don't know. Did he take it like the wrong pill? Maybe he took the wrong pill.